Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, political scientist, now employed as an associate vice president with Campus Labs, and I'm happy to be joined today again by Alexandra Philander, an associate professor of political science at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, welcome back, Alexandra. Hi, Will. How's it going? Good. And I figure out today we're going to talk about really three sort of big, big areas. Um, two of them are going to tie together, I think, fairly closely. And the third sort of the, the personal interest side of the show we get to do once in a while. Um, but to kick off the show, you know, I noticed we haven't really had a dedicated segment uh, in a while that really just looks and says, where are we with the impeachment talk for Democrats, for Republicans, what it would mean, what it wouldn't mean. Um, and I'm going to start by just giving out my, my continued argument that I've mentioned in passing a few times. Um, that I don't think at this moment impeachment would be a wise decision by Democrats in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and I say that from a strategy perspective of pushing for impeachment is going to do two things in my eyes. It's going to divide Democrats, and it's going to help solidify Trump's support and Trump's base um, in the sense of you're not going to change a Republican's mind today who says they might vote for Donald Trump in 2020 by impeaching or trying to impeach. But if anything, you might take somebody who is deactivated and not in love with Trump today and convince them to reenter the fray, much like we saw Democrats rally around Bill Clinton um, after his impeachment talk and his poll numbers actually went went up. Um, so I'm worried that for Democrats, you know, the DCC is already publicly split on whether they want to impeach or not. Um, we don't necessarily need anything to draw focus off of the 2020 candidates. And an impeachment proceeding at this point with an election so close, I don't think does a whole lot except draw attention in a way that Democrats aren't looking for or want. So what are your thoughts, Alexandra, on the impeachment talk in general, where the Democrats stand, where Republicans stand, what you think will happen with this related to 2020, all of those fun, big questions that are burning today? So um, up until the... Mueller report and the uh, bar performance. Uh, I was on board with your general uh, way of thinking about this uh, in terms of focusing on strategy. But since the bar performance and since um, the intransigence to cooperation with uh, the House investigation, uh, I have changed my mind 180. And um, for me, at this point, it is not about strategy and it's not about electoral outcome. As much as I think that it's important for the Democrats to win the 2020 election, and actually it may be crucial for the Democrats to win the 2020 election, I think that this is about principle and this is about protection of our institution. We are not dealing with um, run-of-the-mill transgression. We are not dealing with 
you know, minor pushes against the guardrails of democracy here and there. We are dealing with a wholesale evading and breaking of norms, of ignoring laws, of basically of self-dealing, of being corrupt in unbelievable ways. And I am stunned to see somebody who calls themselves Attorney General of the United States um, play the role in many ways of personal lawyer to the president, um, downplay a report that is very, very damaging and incredibly scary. I am very stressed out and concerned about the unwillingness of the Demo- of the Republican Party to um, look into more detail about uh, in the allegations uh, of uh, about what the Russians are doing, even as we speak in relation to the 2020 election and in the ways that they plan to interfere with that, with election security. Um, all of these things have me worried in a way that goes well beyond strategy and um, electoral outcome. And from my perspective, I fully recognize what you say, that um, it might be strategically problematic and it might um, lead to circling the wagons by the Republicans and a backlash against the Democrats, and it may have uh, it may not be strategically the best um, choice, even though I'm not sure about that either, like for my research, whether that really would make a difference in this particular environment. Um, but for me, this is about democratic institutions. The House is on fire. And um, I, from, from that perspective, I think that there is a political and ethical responsibility of the Democrats to bring all of these things to light. Um, you can't just sit there and discuss, you know, when and at which point it would be a good idea to call the fire department when the house is on fire. You just go ahead and do it, and then you go from there. And I guess, and here's where I'd push back on that, because, again, I think you and I have slightly different views on how damaging the Mueller report was. What I also come back to is, I mean, I'm pretty sure, obviously, that this could get through the House. I'm also fairly certain that no matter what, Trump's not getting removed in the Senate at this point in time. I agree. I and agree, I and I'm fully cognizant of that. Yeah, and that's that's where I keep getting caught is, is, I agree, even if it goes against the strategy side, if you're going to get to the result and it's crystal clear and it's not going to cost political capital to get to that, it makes sense. Um, but I'm not sure with the battles that would have to be fought to prove some of these pieces beyond, you know, sort of the reasonable doubt standard, which again, may or may not have to be in play, obviously, with how how the impeachment side would work, but it, it just seems like it's going to be a whole lot of time spent on that, which it, you're right. I mean, when you look at it through the lens that, that you've kind of shared and a lot on the left and even some on the moderate right have viewed 
um, everything from the Mueller report and what Barr did around it through. It seems like there's definitely the need to, in your metaphor, I think the perfect one here, to call the fire department. Um, I just worry about, are we going to save one house and lose the neighborhood if I'm a Democrat because we put all of our eggs here? He doesn't end up getting removed. He gets reelected. And the one thing I will say about Donald Trump, even as somebody on the right is, I would not want to ever have him actively working against Um and that's that's my concern is so if he survives an impeachment vote and wins re-election, what does he do for those next four years when he's not going to be responsible to voters? Um, and what are Democrats going to do to respond at that point to try to get to what they would need in the Senate and maintain in the House to do something about it? And that just seems like an incredibly difficult road um, to go to. I appreciate what you're saying, absolutely. But like, I am just. Everything, every single thing associated with Trump is just so horrifically corrupt. Like, you know, do you not agree that the like the presence of his children uh, in in the White House and the role that they're playing politically is an incredible violation? Uh, of norms and possibly of laws. I think it definitely opens questions that we've never had to explore before. I mean, there are clear uh, laws about nepotism that have been violated. Um, There are clear laws about divesting of, uh, you know, key types of uh of uh financial interest um that can create conflict of interest i mean there is a huge body of legislation that um is about conflict of interest and basically as a lowly employee of the university of illinois i take an ethics test every year it's required and if i don't do it i can't get paid i lose my paycheck it's a hundred page long powerpoint that i have to go through and answer questions at the end and it's all designed and we're not going to talk about whether this is a good idea or a good design but basically the state of illinois tells me who i have zero control of money if you go beyond the thousand bucks that I have for conference money, um, you know, tells me and forces me to not only follow rules, but to know them. Um, And there are lots and lots and lots and lots of rules about conflict of interest. I also have to sign a form every single year and send it into the Secretary of State of the State of Illinois. Essentially, we're in a situation where key norms of democracy have been broken in such a brazen way that we have become desensitized to the outrage of what it means to break democracy, to break norms. Let me ask that, because I know we have a lot of listeners who would agree with you and say that, yes, we've seen broken norms of democracy, but they would see that as a positive challenge to what they might consider outdated norms or norms that 
should have never been in place or need to be challenged. How do you respond to that? Um, like, what do we say to people that say, you know, yes, we're challenging norms, but those folks say, good, we want to challenge norms. We want to change the old way. How do we handle that? And th- this is not a battle to be fought without specifics. Uh, which norms exactly are good to break? Is it good to break norms that specify that, for example, let's take the conflict of interest, that, you know, uh, top executive officials of the U.S. government should not be beholden to, um, in ways that allow them to make choices uh, that are consistent with their personal self-interest rather than the national interest. Um, Even when it comes to appearances, because this is not just about, you know, whether somebody is capable of separating out the personal from the professional interest, but whether they're appearing to do so. Um, Because um, if I, in my classroom, um, you know, have uh, a student uh, and uh, whose parents have uh, uh, given me a nice car and suddenly the student gets an A, um, it is very difficult for the audience, uh, for the rest of the class, to, to, to say whether the student got an A because I received a car or because the student deserved the A. Um, there's a very good reason why um, we should protect uh, against conflict of interest. Uh, we don't want people who are um, in charge of protecting the public interest to find themselves in position where their personal interest is in conflict with the public interest. We need to avoid these situations, and we do that through certain norms and rules. Um, Are there people out there who would say, no, first of all, you know, it's okay um, if you bring your personal self-interest to politics? And is it okay that you pursue your personal self-interest through politics, that that is acceptable? And I think that's the, the question on the table. Um, and I think that's where it gets interesting. Because I do think, again, like I've talked about on on the show earlier this week, the, the idea that some people are okay rocking the boat. And what we're seeing is definitely rocking the boat. It's just a question of does the boat stay afloat or not? How do we mitigate between those two sort of circumstances? For Democrats themselves, I feel like there's still the norm question um, that's still kind of surfacing. Because, I mean, you know, coming from the left, I'm obviously curious for your thoughts, but it appears the Democrats themselves are divided on whether to move towards impeachment or not for various different reasons. And I think if we, we talk to the average Democrat, I think the things you and I have talked about, Alexander, would come out where it's strategically what's right, legally, morally, what should we do, um, what's going to help us in 2020, should we care about 2020, or do we worry about today and the future direction of the country and how we govern? All of those questions are in play, but what do you think the deciding factors are today if you're sitting in the U.S. House or the U.S. Senate as a Democrat and people are expecting you to say whether you support impeachment? How do you make that decision? 
Well, I think that basically the strategic thinking here is that you want to run the clock some, but not too much. You want to basically get the impeachment process done and bring to the light all the evidence. Because the, the purpose of impeachment, given the Senate situation right now, the purpose of impeachment it would be to facilitate um, getting their hands on all of the stuff that uh, the that Trump and his associates are saying no to. Um, there is far less uh, of a chance that the court will say will will tell the House that uh, no, you can't have access to this if the House has already uh, voted on impeachment. Uh, and also that the court, mindful of the impeachment process, will force things through much faster. Um, because, you know, the Democrats are going to get things in their hands no matter what. Um, the Trump is fighting losing battles when it comes to um, his uh, asserting executive, uh, asserting uh, executive privilege. Uh, on uh, on all of these people going to uh, uh, to the to the hill to, to testify in front of the various committees. I mean, he 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 said that he won't allow uh, Kobach to go up there and talk about the change to the census rule. I mean, that is classic oversight. It has nothing to do with Trump's personal life, right? and his taxes and any of that. This is exactly the information that Congress needs to uh, have and stuff that they, they have every right to ask for. And, uh, and to have like a blanket, no, no, we're not allowing any of it, um, is just not reasonable. Um, but certainly these things can um, stay in the court and get tied up. For a while, but I think that if an impeachment uh, vote has taken place, um, the courts are going to be a lot more mindful of that, and a lot more information will be forthcoming. I think that even Barr uh, sig- has signaled, for example, that there are certain rules that he's not going to necessarily breach. Uh, like if he, I mean, he's been trying to negotiate. Um, that they don't, you know, keep forcing that there's like some negotiations in terms of like the, his testimony because he doesn't want to end up in contempt. Um, and I don't think it's because he is going to have a hard time spending several days in uh, some DC hotel because they're not going to put him up in some dungeon. Oh, um, you don't think he's going to get the medieval jail treatment? I wish, but no, I don't think so, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, you know, he's not going to be in Rikers along with Manafort. He's going to be in, uh, you know, some nice place somewhere. Maybe not, maybe the Holiday Inn, which is going to be horrific for him, I'm sure. Uh, but, Holiday Inn Express. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think that that's as far as it can go. But the signal that it gives is not good. And even though he, in, in this very interesting uh, interview with CBS said that everybody dies and, you know, 
essentially their reputation dies along with them. So who cares? You know, that kind of uh, fatalistic and nihilistic approach doesn't seem to be all that genuine if you, you know, are not willing to be in contempt of Congress. Um, and yeah, are you willing to ride this to the end is almost the question at that point. Yeah, I don't, and I don't think he is. I think he wanted to make a point based on his political beliefs about executive privilege and about the role of the presidency, but I don't think that the hill on which he wants to die is protecting all of the various <laughs> corrupt acts of Trump. Like, he's not at the end of the day, you know, a, a Trump face in that sense. Uh, like he's he has a political agenda, uh, which I think uh, was possible to pursue through Trump. But I don't think that he's going to go that far. Mueller certainly is going to testify once he's subpoenaed, even though he said, you know, this is all I had to say and. Uh, I am, uh, uh, you know, going back to my farm and, you know, doing some toiling after I did all these battling for you as a classical Republican, um, not political Republican, the other type. Um, but basically, you know, he's going to come back and, and testify. Um, and uh, chances are that Don McGahn is also going to testify because remember, these People have to survive uh, personally and professionally post-Trump. Don McGahn is a lawyer. He needs to have clients in the future. He needs to have, you know, a career. For a lot of these people, their career is over, um, given what, how they're implicated with things. So if they want to maintain a career, and especially a career that somehow links with Washington, um, they have to make a nod to the institution. So at the end of the day, I think that we are going to start seeing people coming up to the Hill and testifying, certainly the bank. Uh, I cannot see any financial institution wanting to be on the wrong side of the finance committee of Congress. I, I don't disagree, but I keep coming back to... I. No matter where you fall on Mueller, wherever you, where, no matter where you fall on Barr, no matter where you fall on where this is going, I just feel like all of this is, from a Trump perspective, this is victory because it's murky. It's going to stay murky no matter what, and it's focusing on crap that's done versus looking at policy and other areas to go after, which is fine. And I get the larger picture, but. And again, I hate tying it back to strategy in 2020. It's not going to switch a voter's mind. It's not going to change anything. And everything that could possibly change a voter's mind gets completely ignored with every additional set of testimony, every additional hearing, every additional minute that Democrats in the House stay fixated on this. When, again, I'm not saying that that report was not somewhat damning to Trump. I think it was. But the idea that some silver bullet is going to emerge by just bringing the entire world in front of Congress, I just have such a hard time believing that Democrats can get to the end result they want or find the smoking gun that leads to impeachment or the fall of the Trump uh, empire here. 
I just worry that we're it's a dog with a bone and they have the wrong bone. Well, you know, that was also the perspective um, for the Nixon administration until some dominoes started falling and John Dean went to, to the hill. Um, so I don't know. And also a lot, I think that, yeah, and maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but basically I, I'm, I'm thinking that um, a lot will depend on what is in those tax returns. That's true. Because totally can, true. In those tax returns, you can make forensic accountants make can make direct link to dirty money from Russia and from other places, um, unaccounted, uh, you know, like weirdly represented, like money laundering from, you know, Putin's offshore especially. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, even the Republican establishment will have to, like, and granted, my actual research actually contradicts what I'm about to say, but I think that in a situation like that, uh, where there is really serious evidence that Trump has uh, been receiving, at the receiving end of very dark money from some very shady people um, and uh, these relationships haven't really ended um, uh, and that there are ongoing relationships in the down low about the Trump Hotel in Moscow or whatever else. Um, At some point, the Republican establishment will have to think about what all this is going to do to their Future as a party, because remember, Republicans are 35% of the electorate. For the Republican Party to win elections, they need to get a freaking portion of independence. Yep, absolutely. And, and that 35% is going to drop from year to year if people die, let's be honest. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is the, like the Republican base is dying off, and everybody knows that. So if you are going to really win elections in 10, 20 years from now, you need to get some new constituencies on board. And if people are completely disgusted with the Trump, you know, scandals and saga and like everything, how are you going to convince them and there's the behavior of the Republicans themselves? Because, you know, it's not just that Trump is doing all that stuff, it's that he's being enabled by the party. So as much as the 35% of Americans are like, will just basically follow the Pied Piper all the way down the river and jump off the bridge, there is the other portion that the Republicans need to get elected um, that may not be ready for that. So I don't know whether, you know, revelations of this type and an impeachment is going to uh, not have an effect on independence and turn independence against the Republicans. Because yes, it will create backlash and like the, the Republicans are going to circle their wagons and, you know, sort of uh, protect 
uh, Trump at all costs. But that is not necessarily the case with independence. Also, there is some evidence that, yes, in polls, the proportion of, uh, of Republicans who are supportive of the president no matter what remains very high at 80% or something. But over time, there is erosion of the overall Republican base. There is a small percentage of Republicans, of people, uh, basically cycle after cycle, who doesn't identify as a Republican anymore. They're moving to the independent column. They may not be a lot of them, but that is indicative of a trend taking place um, against Trump. Like, there are some people who are ashamed by Trump and by what's happening. And Trump needs to win those votes, plus the additional um, few votes that he needs in those key states of Pennsylvania and Michigan and, and Ohio. It's not like, and Wisconsin, it's not like he had a landslide uh, election in 2016. You know, he vote, he, he won by a total of, what, 300,000 votes across three states? Uh, wasn't the margin like 80,000 in Pennsylvania? Um, so basically, you know, we are talking about a very weak candidate who won because of institutional design and luck. Not He didn't win the public, right? He didn't win the majority opinion. He won the state by a very, very thin margin. So I'm not sure that, you know, he can play the same game in 2020. And actually, it's like really funny to me to hear, uh, to hear the Trump campaign talking about going after Democrats in this state and that state and like Nevada and things like that. And I'm like, it, it's like, it sounds to me like Hillary Clinton in 2016, where you had people in Michigan basically sounding the alarm and saying, please come here. Crazy things are happening here. And the Hillary campaign was saying, oh, maybe we will go to Iowa and Arizona and try to taste Trump over there in strong Republican states. And, it, you know, it's like completely not on this plan, these types of. I mean, it's, there are no realistic uh, accounts of, uh, of where we are in politics right now. Of course, we do have, th- there are, that said, moving on to the related topic, the Democrats have, forget about the impeachment part and the whole theater related to the impeachment. The Democrats have another major um, headache, which is the 152 candidates, um, you know, like, who is not a candidate for president in the, Rep- in the Democratic Party? That's what it feels like. And again, I mean, I just, when I look at the 2020 piece for the Democrats, I think the parts they're completely ignoring at this point are the donor fatigue, having this many debates with this many people, the questions of fairness that are going to come from the debates, having donors switch based on one good point and one good debate. I just, I, I don't think they're thinking big picture. They're doing everything they shouldn't be doing. I mean, at this point in time, you should be trying to figure out who are the three or four options and let's get through a primary as quick as we can. 
so that we can rally everybody against the Republicans and Trump and have time to go negative and be positive. But in reality, for Donald Trump, he doesn't have to worry about campaigning because the Democrats are going to kill each other. There's no they're, way that doesn't happen. They're they're going to kill each other, but that's it's the least of it because no matter what the Democrats unearth and criticize against each other, it just doesn't matter. Again, you know what Trump represents and has done and his record. But the problem here is that you know what's happening is that people with great their name recognition. Uh, because of their previous uh, participation in recent elections, meaning Joe Biden and uh, Bernie Sanders, who are a million years old and, you know, uh, geriatric, have a really good shot of uh, being the Democratic candidate for president. And that is not fair um, for the party and for the American people more broadly because, come on, we need some rejuvenation. We can't have octogenarians ruling, you know, the the greatest power in the world. Nope. And that's going to um, be, str- be the strategy question, though, again. And I always harp back to this, but as a, a campaigns person, Joe Biden, if Joe Biden gives you the best chance to beat Trump, the question is, do we put up Joe Biden and sacrifice that he's an octogenarian but can win? Or do we put up, uh, whether it's Kamala Harris or somebody else who's younger, more likely to lose to Trump, but we can say we at least put up what we wanted as a vision? So it's going to be a question of do you want the, the, the best chance of victory or do you want to put up the person that you believe most in? And those don't always coincide nicely. Republicans know that too, but I think Democrats have to get there. I don't know if if Joe Biden gives us the best chance because Democrats have a tendency uh, to not be habitual voters and to vote only when they're enthusiastic about a candidate. And we know that. So if they have, especially millennials and especially certain um, certain people within minority groups who don't have, um, you know, who need extra mobilization. So. You know, if people are meh about Biden and like upset by the fact that he is like approaching, um, you know, being a century old, um, people may sit at home. Um, so whereas people like Elizabeth Warren and uh, Kamala Harris actually generate a lot of enthusiasm and enthusiasm is very very important for the democrat um also unlike hillary um hillary had a lot more baggage than her gender uh which was unfortunately you know we know from uh from the literature that um women have a harder time getting elected and there are stereotypes that are very strong and biases against women. And we talked about that um, in the earlier show as well. Um, but at the same time, uh, somebody like Kamala Harris is, um, doesn't have the baggage that um, Hillary has. Um, it's personable. It is very serious. It's like 
has a persona, doesn't have the other drawback that Elizabeth Warren has, which is the being a teacher all the time. Um, and uh, she might have a better chance if she weren't overshadowed by um, these old guys. The Bernie Sanders, I'm sorry, I am a Democrat. And to me, Bernie Sanders should not have a place on the Democratic state at all. He's not a Democrat. True. And I think you have some mainstream old school Republicans that would say the same thing about Trump. I mean, this is the same battle that the, the Republicans faced in 2016. And that's where I keep coming back to is, you know, I don't think anybody at the start of that thought Donald Trump ends up winning the nomination, let alone the presidency. So who's kind of lurking for the Democrats that could still be that surprised person? Um, I can tell you it's not going to be John Hinkenlooper. No, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, that, is, that is for dang sure. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and that's, that's his own doing, too. So it's definitely of interest. But flipping off of the, the 2020 piece, I guess the, we'll wrap up the, the Wednesday show here talking about just some areas of personal interest that we've been reading and looking at. Um, and I'll actually kick off and say that, you know, I always get interested when my two favorite things, sports and politics, start to intertwine. And obviously right now with professional baseball, I think we're going to start hearing more calls for potential regulation of safety netting around baseball stadiums. Um, and I'm incredibly torn on this. As a baseball purist, um, it's incredibly difficult to imagine watching a game through a net. Um, at the same time, last week, watching one of my favorite players on my all-time favorite team um, basically openly cry three times during a game after knowing that he hit a, a small child with a foul ball and caused some pretty significant medical damage is, is tough to watch. Um, but there's so many questions that come in and, you know, it's interesting right now my fiance's in law school so i'm learning all about the legalities of what happens when a ball flies into the stands versus what happens when a bat flies into the stand but i still always question too and, and alexandra i will ask you this because you do have a young child you do have a a baby um the idea of you know if you if you sit in the first or second row of a baseball stadium with a a two-year-old or even younger um what's the expectation there? I mean, what's the, the thought process on knowing that this is potentially quite dangerous, but it, it's just one for me where I hope we don't get to a point where we're politicizing sport in the sense of mandating things like regulation to make sure that everybody quote unquote is safe. Um, even though the safety standards we're adding have not been in existence for the previous 150 years, no problem. Um, so it's my continued push for, you know, smart regulations. And obviously I care about fan safety and player safety, and I don't want to see a young kid get hurt, and I don't want to see a baseball player clearly mentally hurt by knowing that his actions led to that. Um, but I feel like there's got to be some better solution versus somebody, whether it's governmental or even private sector in Major League Baseball, coming out and saying all stadiums must do blank, 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 and blank simply because this has happened to you. Well, what level of risk are we willing to take on as a society and as sport fans um, versus the, you know, cost? There's in every decision, there is a cost and a benefit. Uh, as a, a parent, first of all, you know, I am not um, a big sports fan. Uh and American sports, especially because I come from Europe, I, I just never got into them. And I have, of course, I have at home 
a husband who is a major sports fan with very specific beliefs and ideas about teams and identities. And, uh, you know, I will not betray, you know, what, what teams we are uh, supporting in this house. Um, but basically, you know, um, this is an important thing to him. Being completely, and this is an area where because I have no personal engagement and it's of no personal emotional interest, I have no investment in this, um, you know, as a, a disinterested third party observer, I'm like, well, um, hockey stadiums where you know that the puck could like really kill somebody have um, clear plastic, you know, protection all around. Um, if the same concern exists about um, baseball balls, uh, we should have uh, equivalent protection. Um, I know that it is exciting when uh, people catch a foul ball, uh, but, you know, what is the probability of risking somebody's health and life that we are willing to take as a society before we say, uh, no, you know, we have to change something. Yep. And I think that's um, what we're going to start to see more of that discussion at least. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's the, the issue is like, let's, I mean, and that is an empirical question that can be studied. You know, you can, count how many times and under what circumstances there have been accidents in baseball games versus, I don't know, like uh, field hockey games or whatever. Um, so um, somebody can do the statistical calculation, uh, write a paper about it, have fun with it, and then we can use the results to determine how serious of a, a problem this yeah. is. Because, and, and again, yeah. I can say off the risk side, the one thing I can point to as a data point already is the seats closest to the field are the most expensive, not the cheapest. Um, yeah. So somebody's clearly willing to take that risk and pay for it. Yes, but they also may not recognize how much, you know, you don't, you underestimate. Generally, we know from science um, and from psychology that we underestimate uh, risk uh, in many ways. Certain risks we underestimate and other risks we are motivated to overestimate. Um, but I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, talking about uh, risky behavior, um, I would take my chances probably with a seat at, uh, you know, in the, in the baseball stadium, but not necessarily buying a house in San Francisco. Because there is a much, from my perspective, much higher probability that the house is going to fall on top of me in an earthquake, uh, which is going to happen uh, in the yep, next few years, than um, that than a, a baseball is going to hit me over the head and kill me. I think that I have a much higher chance of dying in an earthquake in San Francisco um, than I have in being hit by a ball. So if we're going to at some point, you know, we have to start thinking about social problems, ranking them, and actually addressing them. And, not, and then, you know, that's where regulations become important. I don't think it's about the anecdote necessarily. Oh, this is like, it's not about the one bridge that collapsed 
and killed the five people that were in the car on top of it is the fact that the entire infrastructure system is about to collapse. Lakeshore Drive, where I live here in Chicago, is mathematically going to collapse. There are no two ways about it. We need to, to shore it up. So, you know, we need the money and we need regulation about that. Nope, and that makes sense. I think it's going to be seen what those linkages end up ultimately looking like. So, obviously, I kind of shared my piece. Alexander, anything you want to share with listeners that you've been looking at, paying attention to, reading about that we haven't really hit on this week? Well, my research, like I've been thinking a lot about and working on the issue of, um, you know, if Trump shoots somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, um, are the Republican voters going to say anything about it? And uh, you are correct. The answer is no. And the equivalent answers for the Democrats is also no. Uh, I am doing work on social identity theory, which basically says that the role of leaders within parties is very, very special because basically leaders encapsulate the identity of the party is who you want to identify with in order to feel as the strongest member of the party and at maximum distance from the out party. And that's really key psychologically. So when um, a leader is threatened, even when it is from within the party, because we know from outside the party, we, we don't even hear that. It doesn't exist in our sort of orbit. But even when the dissent comes from within the party and somebody like Justin Amash, right, comes out and says, the Mueller report is really devastating. We have to pay attention to it. People are not willing to penalize the leader over dissent. It is very interesting to me that all of our experiments, and we've done several experiments so far, show that people recognize a crime and a misbehavior as a, a serious thing and as a serious misbehavior. So they know that something wrong has happened. Then they recognize dissent as an appropriate response by a member of the group. But when it comes to how they respond to both the person who's misbehaving, the leader who's misbehaving, and the person who is a dissenter and bringing the and criticize the leader for the misbehavior is very interesting because they either have no, it has no effect on the leader or it may boost ratings for the leader. And then they penalize the dissenter. So this is really interesting to me and actually quite threatening because from um, a liberal democratic theory perspective, um, in classical liberalism, um, you know, people be, being able to not only recognize but willing to um, embrace dissent in order to protect democracy and in order to protect public good is key because, you know, democracy relies in all of us being enlightened citizens. And apparently, guess what? We're not. So, this has incredible implications for ultimately um, a system of uh, collective self-governance. Uh, if we're not behaving as um, enlightened individuals, um, 
it is hard to see how we can produce results that are consistent with what democratic theory would expect as legitimate outcomes. No, and I think it's especially interesting as we think about this, obviously, with what we've talked about already today with the Democrats and the Republicans trying to figure out how to view leaders, how to handle the dissent, how to handle um, some of those questions. I think that's a great place to kind of wrap it up and bringing that that good theoretical side to it as well. Um, hopefully, as we talk more in the future, we'll keep coming back to that. I think it's definitely a, an area of interest to listeners and also as it kind of comes to my thinking of how I respond to people. Um, dissent and stabilize around leadership of, of in-groups and out-groups. So that's going to be it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope everybody liked what they heard. Listener supports what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. Subscribing to the show also really helps us as the sharing episodes, which you can do right in your whatever you're using to listen to the podcast. Um, word of mouth is our best advertising, so please share with your friends. And please leave reviews and ratings on iTunes um, if you feel so so inclined. If you've got questions, comments, corrections, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach out to us at mail at policyguys.com. Facebook page where we share stories throughout the week and, and communicate with listeners is at facebook.com forward slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday, and we hope you'll join us then. Thanks.